Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Happy Easter. All right, good to see you guys. Well, we've had two services already, so if I stumble over my words and repeat things from the first and second services, that is why. Uh, but I, I believe this. Third service right now, as the, fit, or the third and final service of today for us at Joy Church, is going to be the best one of them all. Because just like in the first and second service, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. This is like the it day for followers of Jesus. And this is, even if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody like convinced you to come to church today. They said, hey, you get 10% off, you know, at brunch or whatever they said to get you to come here. I think you're going to have a good time today. And I think you're going to hear some things that could potentially stir you to think in a different way. One of the things that I love about Easter Sunday is it gives us an opportunity to really dig into the root system and the foundation of the Christian faith. See, Easter Sunday is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is not just a belief. It's not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy or a, or a religion. Uh, it's not metaphorical or even poetic, though a lot of people do metaphors and poetry about it. It's a historical event. And if it actually took place, if there was this man, Jesus, and he lived and said the things that he said and he died on a cross, uh, 2,000 years ago and he went into a, a tomb and then he came out three days later, that has some pretty big implications and ramifications for us. And so we're going to dig into that today. Whether you are that card-carrying Christian or, or you're just kind of kicking the tires on faith or maybe somebody said, hey, go to church with me today. I just want to say you're welcome and I believe God is going to speak to you today. I believe you're going you're gonna to leave this place with more hope and encouragement. Uh, and, and some of you are going to have a spiritual birthday where you really decide today's the day that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this right now. I might not be very funny. I might uh, stumble over my words. But one of the things that I'm convinced of is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And it's a powerful message. And you're going to leave here with some evidence about that today. Sound good? Cool. All right. And then we'll go beat all the other churches to the best restaurants. I got to get my, my joke in there. All right. The resurrection of Jesus, beyond just being a a cool thing that Christians like to talk about or something that we believe in is actually the pivot point, the hinge of history. Literally in Western civilization, we, we divide time, we measure time, B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini, which stands for the year of our Lord, that Jesus made such an indelible impact and mark upon human history that we even divide time based on this event. Uh, Jesus' life, his message, undoubtedly transformed history. Within a few hundred years of Jesus' life and his resurrection uh, from the dead, his followers, these, these kind of uh, what we would probably consider fairly primitive people living 2,000 years ago in, in Judea, kind of in the, the backwaters, forgotten corner of the Roman Empire of that time, they carried this message of the resurrection across the known world and within just a few hundred years, even the Roman emperors were pledging their allegiance to Christ. Now, whether that was fully like authentic and real, who knows? But what we do know is that it changed human history and people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. They didn't have nice leather Bibles with the gold leaf, you know, gold letters on the front. Anybody have a Bible like that? It's got your name on there. Your grandma probably gave it to you, you know, for your 13th birthday. Uh, maybe you need one of those and you're like, please, God, bless me with that nice leather Bible. Um, but these these disciples, Jesus' early disciples, these first Christians, they didn't have what we kind of know as the Christian church. They didn't have these nice buildings. They didn't have the internet and Facebook and Instagram to get their message out. They were literally hoofing it on these Roman dusty roads 
across the known world, and they weren't necessarily saying, let me read the Bible to you. What they were saying is, this is what happened. It's undeniable. It changed me, and it can change you. And that is the message of the resurrection that changed human history. But as we look into this, we're going to see that not only does history pivot on this, this issue, not only does history change because of the resurrection uh, for other people, but your history can change, your story your life can change as you come to see the truth and the validity of the resurrection, not as philosophy, not as metaphor, not as a religious belief, but as historical fact that, that penetrates right to the center of our hearts and changes everything about our lives. But in this context of the resurrection, we actually see something very interesting, which is one of the first recorded conspiracy theories in human history. Now, lest you think I'm talking about the resurrection being a conspiracy theory, actually, no, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that it actually took place, which I'll share with you in just a few moments. But actually, it was the contrary position. It was the religious and civil authorities that had a vested interest in holding on to their power, their uh, prestige, their wealth, kind of like the world's always worked this way, right? That sometimes the people who are meant to protect others and guard and and, uh, and do good. They actually take power to themselves, and they had a vested interest in stopping the message of Jesus, and they're the ones that actually foster this conspiracy theory. And I'll share that with you in just a minute. Before we get into that, I don't know about you, but I actually kind of am into conspiracy theories. Is that okay to say that? Maybe you thought that we were just going to read scriptures and, you know, sing hymns today, but actually I'm going to talk about aliens. Is that cool? Like UFOs and stuff? Yes. No? Okay, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I did it the other two services. Why not now? When I was a kid, I mean, I have to blame my parents for this. And I had great parents. They were like, raised me right. You know, I mean, I hope so. Maybe some of you would disagree. But my parents made a big mistake, which was at night, we'd be driving. Maybe we were camping or some, I just remember summer nights with the windows down, Southern Oregon. Come on, somebody, getting ready for summer. Excited about this. We'd be driving along. And there's this radio show that comes on at 10 o'clock at night. It runs from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Why? That's the max fear zone right? <laughs> like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Anything is possible between 10 and 2. Come on, somebody. So this show is called Coast to Coast AM. Got any coasters in here? If you know the show, you know that's the music, right? They kick on. And when I was a kid, it was Art Bell, best radio voice ever. I actually started smoking just to sound like Art Bell. <laughs> and then people were like, that's not good for you. Oh, okay, I better stop. Uh, and then George Norrie also has an incredible voice. And, and I like these guys because they don't, they're not really trying to filter, you know, what's true or not. They're really just letting people and really anybody, and it's always the guy in a truck, you know, at two in the morning driving through Nebraska who saw something. And, you know, they're sharing all these things. They talk about ancient aliens. And they talk about, you know, Bigfoot, uh, which I'm a particular, you know, fan of Bigfoot because Pacific Northwest, you know, so they're talking about all this kind of stuff and, and conspiracy theories and who shot JFK and all this kind of stuff. And, as a kid, you know, I had to blame my parents because I, I just thought, I mean, if it's on the radio, it's real, right? If it's on TV, if it's on the internet, you can't lie on the internet, right? You have to tell the truth. You can't lie on the radio. Okay, as an adult, I found out something a little different, but they would tell these kind of stories and it, it generated in me this kind of curiosity and interest in things that go bump in the night and alternate perspectives. And I'm not saying I believe in it or whatever, but I think Things deserve to be examined based on the evidence. And when I look at the, the story of Jesus and the story of Christianity, I, I consider myself to be an analytical thinker. And I'm not standing here today as a Christian pastor preaching this message to you 
because I have ooey-gooey feelings on the inside of me and a little, you know, spirit whispered in my ear that something was true and there's no evidence. Actually, to the contrary, the reason I'm standing here today is because I believe that there, yes, was a man named Jesus Christ who was who he said he was and he did what he said he would do and he was crucified on a real Roman cross in a very brutal way. Literally, our word excruciating comes out of this crucifixion, that word crucifixion, Latin ex cruis, out of the cross, the pain of the cross that Jesus actually did die, suffer on that Roman cross. And then he did something that doesn't happen in, in history. He, he didn't just die and then just go away. He came back from the dead. He rose from the dead. And that's why I'm here today. Not because I believe that philosophically, metaphorically, religiously, because I believe it historically that it actually happened. I'm setting the stage for this, and I'll talk about this conspiracy theory that was formed around this event. Jesus dies on Friday. We celebrated that on Good Friday. He goes into the grave, and a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who is a follower of Jesus, he said, would you give me the body of Jesus so we can give it the proper uh, burial preparations? And they, they did the uh, herbs and spices. I don't know why, but they marinated dead people at this time in history. And, and uh, you know, that's weird. But anyways, they, that's what they did to make sure that corpse would smell okay, I guess for future smellings that were going to take place. I don't know. But they prepared to honor the body. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> Somebody give this lady a free coffee. Come on. <laughs> uh, so they, they prepare the body of Jesus. They place it in a tomb. And this is a very dead body. Like, I don't know how to say that, but more than that. But Jesus was not asleep. He didn't get a spear shoved into his side where blood and water came out, which medical doctors have actually said means they actually pierced the water sack around his heart that was enlarged because of what he'd gone through at the cross, and he's dying. I mean, you can read about all the medical evidence of this, that he's speared through the side. Um, he's actually dead. They put him in a grave. They've done this burial preparation, and he's in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, at this time, this is a rich man's tomb. They didn't just dig the dirt and put people down in the ground. They would actually put you in a stone tomb if you had the, the resources for this, which this rich man did, and then they would block the, the stone tomb with, the, with a large stone. Uh, and so this is, this is the stage. This is where we are in the narrative, in the story. Jesus is dead and in the grave. He's been crucified. It says in Matthew chapter 27, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. This is the Roman governor of this province. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. So it was very common knowledge, even amongst Jesus' opponents, his political and spiritual enemies, that he had claimed, I will die and I will rise again. Okay, so this is not, nobody's confused about this. Even his enemies are able to preach this part of the gospel. They know, hey, he said he's going to rise again. So... Roman governor, make sure you do what you need to do to make sure his disciples don't come and steal his body. In verse 65, Pilate says this, take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Now, I just want to pause for a second and listen to what Pilate is saying. This is a brutal military governor of the, one of the world's greatest military uh, operations, the Roman Empire. If you study this out, like they knew how to kill people and they knew how to control people and they knew how to guard stuff. You don't have an empire for a few hundred years and go across the entire known world unless you're good at that sort of military industrial complex kind of stuff. You with me here? So these aren't jokers. These aren't like a bunch of like, oh man, send out, you know, Barney and, and, uh, and Leroy and they'll go guard the tomb. No, he's saying do the best 
Roman job. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. We got another one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Boom. Uh, go guard the tomb. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, as a kid, I would see, you know, picture Bible pictures and there's always like the, G- the tomb and Jesus is in there and everybody's happy. No, 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 no. This is like marinated body, dead people, gross, it, it, a dead body in a tomb. It's sealed. And I would always see pictures of, of like one or two Roman guards. And it would always be like the dad bod Roman centurion guy, you know. And he, one guy's smoking, you know, and nobody's paying attention. And they're just there, you know, guarding a dead body. We need to remove that picture, okay, from our minds. That's not what's taking place. Actually, when historians have looked at this, when they said post a guard, they don't mean like one guy. Uh, they mean a whole squad. And these are Roman soldiers. They are trained. They are armed to the teeth. They are mean. They haven't had Italian food in two years. Come on. They're way over here in Israel. They don't want to be there. And when they have a job to do, they want to get back to, you know, the south of, of Italy. They want to get back to where they're from. They are posted there and they're mean and they're, they're on duty. They're doing their thing. And there was probably at least 16 guards. Okay. So again, just setting the stage for this. So there's the guard. They're there. We zoom forward a little bit in the narrative to Matthew 28. It says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. You see, one of the things I love about our faith as Christians is it's not just based in fairy tales. The, even the angels who are overseeing this supernatural resurrection event are like, you need to make sure and get receipts and observe where there was a dead body, there now is not. Even from the very beginning, there was an emphasis placed upon the historical reality that this thing that we call the resurrection actually happened. Zooming forward a little bit, Matthew 28, while the women were on their way to go tell Jesus' disciples that he had risen from the dead, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan. This is the conspiracy theory. You ready? They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Why do they have to say that? Because Roman soldiers who dis, did not discharge their duty in the right way were actually subject to the penalty of death. So if you have an assignment and that's your job, how many of you would work harder, you know, if you, it was like your penalty? Look, uh, Ed, you're working here at 7-Eleven, and if you don't fill the slurping machine right, then we're going to have to kill you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I've worked at Red Robin, and that's not how they do things over there. Uh, Roman soldiers, upon penalty of death, had to make sure that they did their job. So these religious leaders are telling them, hey, we're going to pay you guys for your trouble, but also we got your back. Don't worry. If Pilate is like, you, my 16 Navy SEALs from Roman Empire fell asleep and, and these, these like disciples came and got this body, um, they, they have to cover their tracks. And so they say, we, we got you. We'll satisfy you, keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money 
And they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Boom. Conspiracy theory. There, there, this, this alternate narrative created around this event to cover it up, conceal it, suppress it. But the problem was, like a beach ball, when you take a beach ball, you know those, the, the colorful ball, and you put it under the water at the pool, eventually it comes shooting back up. And so this conspiracy theory does not stop the message of the, the resurrection. This conspiracy, conspiracy theory does not squelch this message. It doesn't stop it because the truth comes to the surface. And not only does this message come out, it goes viral because so many people see Jesus that they literally cannot get around this story. It goes all around the world and it changes human history. As we examine this today, I want to look at the, a quote by a man named Wolfhart Pannenberg, which just offhandedly is the most metal name you can ever have. If your name is Wolfhart, you rock, okay? Hopefully we don't, I mean, hopefully we do have a Wolfhart here because that's a cool name. Uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg said this, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. And we're going to use these two things that he talks about. It's kind of the two steps of this message that we'll go through today. First, it is a very unusual event. Second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. The first thing that Wolfhart says is that the resurrection is a very unusual event. Now, standing here before you, I'd like to consider myself an educated person, a, an analytical thinker, someone who needs to see facts, not just fairy tales, that I'm not just practicing blind faith, uh, but I want to see evidence. But I can't stand here before you and say, oh, the resurrection is a completely ordinary, usual event, happens all the time, uh, not unusual at all, nothing to see here. Actually, no. People coming back from the dead is a really, really unusual thing. From what we understand throughout history and also in our own experience of life, when somebody crosses the River Jordan, when they go to be happy in heaven, when they go to their heavenly marinade place, you know, whatever takes place, when they go from life into death, that's a one-way street. How many of you say that's our kind of knowledge and experience, okay? So if it doesn't happen that way and, and this normal course of events reverses course and goes a different direction, we have to be honest about this, that that is unusual, okay? Now, I would say that I heard a speaker talk about this recently, and it caught my attention. He said, many people assume that the writers of the New Testament, that is the gospel accounts, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' disciples and the, the letters to the church that were written and uh, the, the documents that make up what we call the New Testament, many people assume that the New Testament is the foundation or the genesis point of the resurrection, but actually, if you were creating a conspiracy, you would, you would build, build it around or creating a worldview or a new belief system or whatever, for whatever reasons that you had to do this, you wouldn't do it that way because it's so unusual and so easily disprovable. In other words, you would come up with something that is a much better idea than, hey, our guy was dead, but he came back to life. It's so easy to disprove that, that unless it's true or unless you believe it's true, you don't hang your whole religion upon that thing. And so actually the resurrection is the birth of the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't birth the resurrection. The New Testament comes out of the resurrection event. It reminds me of a funny thing that happened here at Joy Church, not in this building, but when we were back at the Hilliard Community Center many years ago. Uh, Bethany was teaching the kids class, and we just had one kids class that day. And our two-year-old son Jack was in there, and Bethany was doing the lesson about 
Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And she said, and that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And my, my little doppelganger, Jack, uh, analytical thinker, you know, asks tough questions. My little guy, he's two years old. He raises his hand. Bethany calls on him. Uh, yes, Jack. He says, no. <laughs> and she's like, excuse me? No, Jesus died. And as a two-year-old, with his grasp of the way the world works, we'd have to go, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of more rational, isn't it? She goes, well, Jack, you know, Jesus did die. He died on the cross for our sins. Isn't that great, class? But he rose again. And Jack raises his hands. No, <laughs> Jesus died. So Bethany had to say, okay, class, let's not pay attention to Jack right now. Give this kid a cookie. Uh, yes, Jesus died, but he rose again. But actually, that same debate rages on to this day. Because, yes, it's an unusual event. For our faith and our belief as Christians to hang on this idea, this historical event that somebody actually rose from the dead and that's why we believe and that's where everything comes out of, it's actually kind of dangerous because it would be easily disproved. But that is what we are talking about today. We're talking about the reality of this historical event. What did early Christians believe? I mean, I like to go back to the beginning to see how did they think about this. Listen to what one of Jesus' disciples, a man named John, this is what he said in regards to this. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. And listen to how clear he says this. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Verse 3, going ahead a little bit, he says, We proclaim to you what we ourselves have what? Metaphorically? philosophically, religiously, intellectually, no. What we have, say it with me, actually seen. Like seven people said it with me. That was cool. <laughs> Let's try that again. What we have actually seen and heard, that you may, thank you, give yourself a round of applause, that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. John, one of Jesus' disciples, he's saying, we were not in this just for philosophical or intellectual reasons. We didn't come up with a clever idea that we thought sounded really cool. No, we actually saw, we actually heard, we actually touched. We base everything we believe on history and reality. I want you to think about John. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He was there when Jesus did the miracle feeding the 5,000. He was there when Jesus walked on water. John, the scholars believe he was about 15 or 16 years old. He was actually a teenager uh, as one of Jesus' disciples. He lived through all of these experiences. He saw Jesus appear to him, his brother James, their, their friends, these disciples. And John was standing there in the room when the resurrected Jesus shows up. And Thomas, the guy we call Doubting Thomas, is like, well, I don't know, you could be a ghost. He had listened to a lot of Coast to Coast AM the night before. And so he's like, Jesus, you could be a ghost. And Jesus says, well, Thomas, why don't you go ahead and put your hands in my wound? And this is totally what guys do. We're like, hey, I got a scar. I want to touch it, <laughs> right? Jesus goes, hey, put your hands in my wound and see the scars in my hands. And, and Thomas goes, cool, it's gross. I want to touch it, right? And he puts his hand and he touches the place where that spear went into the actual physical body of Jesus that had actually killed him made to verify he was dead. And he touches those scars. And John is there when Thomas says these words, Lord of me, God of me, because dead people don't come back from the dead. 
until they do, and everything changes. And so John says, it's not about philosophy, it's not about clever ideas, it's about history and reality. Now, I want to give you today just some mountaintops of evidence that I personally find compelling for the resurrection of Jesus, and, and specifically why I can't just ignore it out of hand and say that didn't happen, and there's no way it could happen. A lot of people will reject the supernatural, but they do so for either emotional or what we would call presuppositional reasons. In other words, if you as a person say there is no possibility of a supernatural thing taking place, and then you immediately just discount every type of miraculous thing, you're not actually now thinking scientifically or rationally. You've moved into essentially rejecting something out of hand, and you're not really thinking uh, critically about it. So even if a person says, I don't believe in Jesus, we still need to accept the possibility or potential of these things. And for me, when I look at, at, at some of this evidence, I go, you know what? Without having been there myself, this is as close as I can get to putting my confidence in something that actually took place because there is enough weight of evidence and people that said, this is actually what happened. And then the results in human history following for me to go, that's something I can hang my faith upon and build my faith upon. Number one, evidence I find compelling for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that every single one of Jesus' disciples, there were 12 men. One of them was named Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He committed suicide um, and lived happily ever after. No, I don't know. But <laughs> Judas... Uh, it's like in fairy tales, you know, somebody always has to live happily ever after. It's not Judas. So anyways, Judas, he sort of removes himself from the picture. The apostles select another guy named Mattathias. And I believe Jesus picked his 12th apostle when he picked Paul. He appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Every one of these 12 guys and Mattathias, actually, we know historically that they affirmed their belief and their witness of Jesus Christ all the way from, remember, John is about 16, maybe 17, 18 years old when Jesus dies and is resurrected. And he, he dies as, I think, a 95-year-old man later. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but he's, he's pretty old. He, he outlived most of the other disciples. They all affirmed and proclaimed the gospel, not just where they lived, but all across the world. And every single one of them was either martyred or they tried to kill them for their witness. So remember doubting Thomas. Remember, puts his hand in Jesus' side, touches his scars. Thomas carries the gospel message, the message of the resurrection, to what we now know as the nation of India. He goes all the way there. He's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and, and he gets martyred by, by them spearing him. They take spears, long, thin spears, and they stab him. Now, because I'm, I have a weird brain, I think about this a lot. And I think about this. If I'm in the process of becoming a human pincushion, if I'm in the process of becoming a human shish kebab, I'm like the mushroom in between the steak and the pineapple on the shish kebab, when do I reconsider my worldview? Like if somebody said, Jake, you know what you learned at Rogue Community College when you were you know, going, to, going to college? And you know what you learned about computer science or something? Uh, do you think that was true? And if you say no, we'll stop spearing you? I would be like, gosh, I don't even like Rogue Community College. I've never seen Rogue Community College. I've never been there, right? How many of you would change your tune? So few. Okay. Well, I would. Uh, you're like, I don't want to get in trouble in church, you know. You're, you're good. You're going to get in trouble after church. Okay, so Thomas is getting speared, and he doesn't stop preaching the resurrection. Uh, 
Peter gets crucified upside down on a Roman cross. The Apostle Paul, they believe he was beheaded. When the guy's standing there with the sword, when do you go, nah, I didn't see him. Nah, I don't know. I don't think, it, I don't, uh, maybe I'm confused. I had some magic mushrooms. You know what I mean? Whatever took place. Many of Jesus' disciples were stoned. Okay, Eugene and Springfield, hang on. Not like that. People threw rocks at them. They, they threw rocks at them. I mean, when somebody's holding a big rock that's shaped like a baseball, and they're like, I'm going to introduce this to your face. How serious are you about your belief system now, friend? And so when I think about Jesus' disciples, and you can study this out, it's historical fact. It's not a mystery. It's not made up. It's not just the traditions of the church. It's, it's in the history books. You just got to go read about it. They all affirmed the resurrection. They carried it to their death. And John, the guy that we read about having actually seen and touched Jesus, he wasn't martyred, but it wasn't for lack of trying. They actually boiled him in oil. Yuck. When you're like the fried turkey at Thanksgiving, you know, when do you reconsider? And so for me, nobody changes their story. Not one person under pains of death. You guys, they didn't get book deals. They didn't go on Fox and Friends. They didn't get a movie, the movie rights. You see what I'm saying? They, they, they literally lost their friends, their family, their social standing. They became enemies of the state. And, and all of a sudden, they're carrying this message. And the only thing that was motivating and pushing them forward was that they saw Jesus Christ. And I would say it was more than that. It was actually the, the impact of Christ in their own life, in their own story. Because see, knowing that Jesus rose from the dead is not enough. It's also knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and what that means to you in the resurrection life that can come and be on the inside of you. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. The second piece of compelling evidence for me is this, that Jesus' own family, his own blood, the people that he grew up with, they believed in his resurrection and his divinity. Now, Jesus' brother James wasn't a follower of Jesus before he died on the cross and rose from the dead. But seeing your brother who died and said, I'm going to die and rise from the dead, and this is why, because this is who I am, that sort of changes some things. And James believed in Jesus after the resurrection, and James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he also is martyred for his faith in his brother. He's thrown off the temple, 80 feet from the pinnacle of the temple, hits the rocks, ouch, is not dead, and then they actually come in and club him to finish him off. And at no point does he say, well, hold on, I'd actually like some medical attention and I want to rethink what I believe about my brother. Nope. If my brother or sister comes like, I'm God, I'd be like, no, because I've given you a wedgie. <laughs> and I know God doesn't let people give him wedgies, right? Like, I, There's going to be some things here. Three compelling evidence. There were hundreds, not 5, 10, 15, 50, no, hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. He says over 500 people saw Jesus, though some have fallen asleep. He's referencing that they've now died because this is written now 20, 30 years later. And this message has now gone across the world. And even though there was a conspiracy theory to try to squelch it, too many people saw it. The cat got out of the bag. And Paul's saying, hey, I've got receipts. Jesus actually rose from the dead. There are 500 people that saw it. Most of them are still alive at this point. Happy to share with you what they saw. In other words, come at me, bro. You can't disprove this. This actually took place. This information is out. Now think about this. In this room right now, there are probably about 500 of us, roughly. 
Do you know that we could not agree about anything? We don't want to eat at the same restaurant. We don't vote the same, right? Some of you, most of you are Christians and love the ducks, but a few of you are loving the Huskies and obviously need to get saved today, clearly, but obviously. (laughs) But think about trying to get 500 people to agree about something and never break for three decades. It's just incomprehensible. 500 people saying, no, we actually saw Jesus and holding that story. It's, it's amazing. Number four, it's also the resurrection and the life of Jesus, at least the historical basis of this, this account and this event, is attested to by secular historians. From the Roman world, we have Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, even the emperors Trajan and Hadrian, they write about the person of Jesus. Were these people believers? No. Did they accept Christ as the Savior? No. Uh, not that we know of historically, but they knew that he was real and they affirmed what he said and that is what his disciples believed. Jewish historian Josephus writes extensively about Jesus and talks about his life and his message and that his disciples and followers believed that he had died and been, ri- and been risen from the dead. So again, this is not just sort of a made-up thing. You know, our generation, uh, at least our time in history, we have access to the most amount of information that humans have ever had And yet for most of us, we're kind of like a mile wide and an inch deep. And so we hear things like, well, you know, the scripture was all just like made up. You know, a bunch of like Catholic priests in the Middle Ages made all this up. And as someone who actually studies this stuff, because I'm a geek uh, and like it, you're like, were you forced to do that? No, I actually like it. Uh, Reading old dusty books. That's not true. These accounts come to us right from the source eyewitnesses are recorded And we have documents from within the first decade to 15 years after the resurrection event, actual copies of manuscripts of people writing these things down. No, it was not invented by some Catholic priest in a chapel somewhere in France by the Illuminati. Come on. You need to stop listening to Coast to Coast and get some sleep, you know. (laughs) Study the actual historical facts here. But even Jesus' opponents, people that had a vested interest in him not existing, in him not being uh, not being who he said he was, they affirmed, no, there was this guy, Jesus. Now, did they believe? No, but they, they knew that he was real. Yeah. The last thing is this, this, this idea of the resurrection being this conspiracy that the Pharisees and the Romans wanted to, to create this idea. This would have been one of the worst planned conspiracies in human history, like an actually stupid idea. You see, at this time in history, women were not actually allowed to be eyewitnesses in court, had to be a man. I don't agree with that, but that's what they had set up at this time in history. And Jesus chooses two women to be the first proclaimers of the gospel. So Mary, the two Marys, are the first ones to see the risen Jesus and the first ones to proclaim the gospel. How many of you know we need a lot more women in our day and age to come and preach and proclaim the gospel? Amen. Uh, Christianity has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, allowing everybody to to be who God's called them to be. Uh, And so they... If you're creating a conspiracy, though, and you have two people that see Jesus first and they can't even give testimony in court, that's stupid. That's a bad idea. I would have had like Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees, right? I would have had like all of the leaders uh, be there and I would have come in like a golden chariot, like Thor, you know what I mean? Just right in there. But he doesn't do that. Uh, The details actually change from witness to witness. And uh, if you study how eyewitness accounts work, if a bunch of people witness a crime, they're going to have varying perspectives of details, different colors, things like that, but the material uh, event will be the same. And so we see that it's actually there in the the gospel writers recount a little bit different details because they're real eyewitnesses, not making something up. 
If you make something up, you get together, you sit at a table and you go, you say this, you say this, you say this, right? And you all say the same thing. That's not exactly what they do. And then uh, all you need is for all of these 500 people and all of Jesus' disciples, you just need one person to cave in and break. They get no money for this. They get no social standing. They get no satisfaction. Like they go out and many of them die, literally die, soon or years later proclaiming this message, but they get no benefit for it, for this message, unless it's true, unless it's real. So again, it's a horrible conspiracy if that's what it was. Really, really bad idea. I could have done much better, and I'm sure many of you could. What we find is when we look at this, his enemies acknowledged him, his friends and family received him, and the world responded to him, and history itself is marked as the message of the cross and the resurrection, and this message of Jesus spreads around the, the, the world. Much less to talk about the fact that these disciples are also filled with the Holy Spirit, and as they go from city to city, they're not only talking about the resurrection, but they're demonstrating it, because when they pray for people, people get healed. And when they pray, demons flee. And when they pray, sometimes dead people come back to life again. Because resurrection life wasn't just a historical event. It was a new movement that started as Jesus, the first fruits of the new creation, kicked down death and the grave and reversed what we know as the natural way of life. I do funerals as a pastor and people will say to me, oh, pastor, I miss my husband or wife or so on and so forth. But I know that death is just a natural part of life. And I stop them and I say, hey, I am sad about the person that you've lost. But let me stop and let me upgrade your theology really quick. Death is not a part of life. Death is the invader, the imposter, the interloper. Because actually God created us to live forever. And that's what Jesus was restoring back at the resurrection. So we're sad that somebody died. Yes, death is a part of life on this side of eternity. But in Christ, we believe in life forevermore, life eternal. Jesus changed everything. Because the resurrection happened, because this event took place, it changes everything. Going back to our heavy metal brother, Wolfhart Pannenberg, he said, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you lived. This, my friends, is the real reason why, the real reason why the hate-filled, blinded, religious and civil leaders of Jesus' day, why they had to try to suppress this story and create a conspiracy theory because of two of the most scary words in human history, personal responsibility. If Jesus rose from the dead, you and I have a responsibility to look full in the face of that truth and then make a decision for ourselves. I want to give you four things today as we get ready to close. That because Jesus rose, because he rose, you must choose to accept or reject him as Savior, God, and King. We live in a relativistic time we like to choose beliefs and philosophies and ideas, kind of like ice cream flavors. And I have my truth. You have your truth. I prefer this. You prefer that. Yeah, Jesus is great. I like the parts of Jesus where he says, feed the poor and clothe the people that don't have clothes. That's great. I don't love the Jesus who's like going to come back with fire in his eyes and bring judgment upon the sins of the world. And we live in a culture in which we want to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like, but not the ones that kind of come against what we're doing in our life. And the reality, though, is that Jesus, as the risen Savior, we have to accept or reject him as Savior, King, and Lord. He doesn't let us live in this place of uh, complacent or apathetic neutrality. Jesus claimed divinity. He demanded obedience, and he calls us to follow him. And we don't get to have Jesus on our terms, only on his. 
In the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus never intended to give us this comfortable place of neutrality. He, he pushes us. He draws a line in the sand. Jesus makes me uncomfortable. Well, yeah, but aren't you a Christian? I am. But you know what? Every day there's a cross where Jake's will has to die and Jesus' will has to live. Why? So that, that the kingdom of God can flow into this place around me so that God's will and his ways can be done in and through my life. But, I, but that means I have to die to myself because there's a king on the throne and his name isn't Jake Schmelzer, it's Jesus Christ. And because he rose, you must accept or reject him. But there's not another option. And it's not just accept Jesus as Savior, but reject him as Lord. No. If I accept him as Savior, I have to receive him as Lord, as God and as King. Number two, because he rose, our sins are forgiven. We celebrated that Jesus died on the cross for our sins on Good Friday, but the sign that God accepted that payment is, is that God raised him from the dead. In other words, Jesus took all the sin of the world, past, present, and future. Uh, says he became, the scripture says he became sin for us. He died on the cross. But God said, you know what? He was an innocent, righteous man. He satisfied the, the payment for sin. And on Resurrection Sunday, it was like, ali, ali, oxen free. All the sins have been paid for. If you're here today and you say, well, my past is too, too dark and I'm, I'm too caught up in things and I've done too much and I'm too far from God, I'm here to tell you that a resurrected Savior has a different story to tell you. Yeah. That God received that payment for your sins and for mine and the resurrection says, it's finished, it's done. God received that and if we receive Jesus, he forgives our sins. Number three, because he rose, death is defeated. Death is the core problem underneath everything wrong with our world. But Romans chapter 8 tells us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells on the inside of us, dwells and gives life to our mortal bodies. And so death does not get the final say. Death is not a part of life. Death is the invader. And life is what is meant to be. And Jesus brings life and life eternal. Life and life more abundantly. When you receive Jesus, your destiny is no longer eternal separation from God or just going into eternal nothingness. Your destiny is to live with God, without pain, without fear, without the, the degradation of uh, human societies built outside of the kingdom of God. And death is defeated. That is what the resurrection is about. And that is the ultimate hope of the gospel. Last, certainly not least, because he rose, because Jesus rose, there is hope. There is hope. I met a lady today whose name was Hope. And I said, hey, your, your name is so great. That's like what this whole thing is about today. Henry Knox Sherrill said this, the resurrection gives my life meaning and direction and the opportunity to start over no matter what my circumstances. Because Jesus rose, it means there's hope for a better tomorrow. It means there's hope for you and for me. And I look at the world around us and I go, man, it seems pretty dark. It seems pretty messy. God, why can't we agree with each other? Why do we have to hurt each other and fight and kill each other based on different ideologies and politics and all this kind of stuff? And why is there so much strife and not even just strife out there in society, but strife and enmity and families and, and the breakdown. And it just seems so hopeless. The world is such a mess. And then as a Christian, I'm brought back to this beautiful truth that in a world gone totally wrong, ruled by death, no, that was not the story God was content to leave it at. Jesus showed up, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And there's hope for the future. There's hope for your life. There's hope for your children. There's hope for your family, for your co-workers. There's hope for this community. God is not done with us. Jesus brings hope. He brings life. He's the one that made all new things and he makes all things new. There is hope for you today. 
Maybe you've bought, you drank the Kool-Aid. Maybe you bought this conspiracy theory that says all you are is time plus slime plus chance. Maybe you don't think you have any purpose. And maybe as you sit here today and you're listening to this crazy pastor with a mustache and skinny jeans talk about UFOs and talk about resurrection life and you're like, that sounds like zombies. It is zombies. It's really cool. Come back to church next week. We'll talk about other cool stuff. But you're, you're here today and you're going, yeah, but I don't have any hope. I don't have any purpose. My life isn't really meaningful. And I'm just sort of under it all. And I'm here to tell you right now that just like those angels rolled away that stone and Jesus rose up, he wants to roll the stone away from your heart, roll the stone away from your life. And he wants to put his resurrection life inside of you and give you hope for a brighter tomorrow, hope for a future, that you get to grab hold of your brothers and sisters on side to side and be part of God's family and sit at the table of the Lord and enjoy great fellowship with your brothers and sisters, that you get not just a place in the family, but a place in the family business. And God wants to use your life. Yes, your life, your life. You go, who am I? You're somebody that God made on purpose and for a purpose. And he wants to use your life to make a difference in the world around you, to let his kingdom come and his will be done in your life. My life? Yes, your life. Why? Because God is awesome. (laughs) Because he loves you. Because he made you. The Apostle Paul talks about this a little bit in Ephesians, and he says that we were created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God planned for us long ago. You see, our story was that we took what God gave us in the Garden of Eden, we made it yucky, and God took our mess and he made it beautiful. Even in your scars and your stories and in your imperfections, he's doing a work of grace, and he's establishing a weight of glory, and your life can actually make the world a better place as you surrender it to Jesus Christ. As we finish today in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't believe the conspiracy theory. Don't believe the lies that said Jesus didn't rise, that Jesus didn't come back, that he didn't rise from the dead. He did, and it changed everything for history, and today it changes everything for you and for me. And so if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to participate in this, I want to put my faith in Jesus. This is your moment. Now, we don't believe that praying a prayer is like a magic bean or some magic incantation that you pray this prayer and that you're saved by a prayer. What you're saved by is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But we like to mark that start of that journey of following Jesus by saying in faith, I choose to follow Jesus, not on my terms, on his terms. And Pastor Jake, what do I bring to him? You bring him your sin. You bring him your allegiance. You bring him your life, the good and the bad. You lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, take me. Have all of me because I want all of you. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. I want to receive the life that you offered for me. So if you could bow your head and close your eyes today, we're going to just take a few moments and many people are going to make this decision. If that's you, you say, Pastor, I want today to be my spiritual birthday. I want to put my faith in Jesus. Just lift up your hand right now. Put it up high. Amen. Thank you so much. Awesome, 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 awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. Come on. Proud of you guys. Come on. If that's you, put a hand up. This is a great moment. Thank you. I see it. Awesome. So many people. Yes, thank you. So many people. Praise God. Good job, you guys. Awesome. Well done. Awesome. Pray this prayer with me today, and we're going to give you some next steps to take. We're not going to call you out or embarrass you, but we're going to help you be a part of Joy Church and continue to walk out your faith in Jesus Christ as he changes your life. But right now, church, we're all going to pray this prayer together. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. Thank you for giving your life for me at the cross. 
Thank you for dying for my sins. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. I put my faith in you and in you alone. I give you my life today. In Jesus' name, amen.